Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing and wrapping up our look at the, um, the biblical person Rahab, who was a prostitute in Jericho at the time of the conquest of the land when Joshua overthrew the land and began to, to spread abroad in the land the Lord had given to and promised to the, uh, the Israelites uh, at the time of Abraham. So a long, long time has passed, hundreds and hundreds of years since that time. And so they come into the land, and, and they've met this uh, woman, uh, Rahab. The spies who went into the land stayed with her a couple of days and um, got her blessing, and she sought their blessing as well. And so we saw in, in yesterday's podcast that that basically you have a Canaanite Passover set up um, because she's told as they escape, um, per her instructions and, and her with her assistance, uh, as these spies escape the king of Jericho, who who wants them, then she asks a favor of them, and the favor is is very simple and straightforward. It's save us. <laughs> we know the Lord's giving Jericho and all the land into your hands, and we know that He is the Lord in the heavens and on the earth, and therefore. What I need from you is because I've helped you in so many ways, then what I want is is that you would spare my life and the lives of my uh, parents, my brothers and sisters, and all that belong to them. And so they agree to that uh, and say, if you do the following things, if you put the scarlet cord out of the window so we'll know which uh, house is yours, and then also that all your people would be gathered into that home, then when death comes for everyone else in Jericho, because it was devoted to destruction, which means that everything, both the the people and the livestock there, had to be destroyed. Um, Because of that, they said, you know, if you'll do these things, then essentially what will happen is you will experience the same thing we experienced in Egypt when the firstborn were killed on the night of Passover, um, and you and your family will be spared in spite of the fact that all others in Jericho will die. So so she sought and received that covenant promise from them that if you do these things, then we will do these things. But it, it's it's essentially a Canaanite Passover that's happening here, and she's going to hurt. She and her family are participating. And, and again, it's the same as Noah. You know, as long as you're in the ark, you're safe. Same with uh, Lot. As long as you're where you are here in this place, and then in the morning they have to flee to escape the coming judgment. Here it's it's you've got to stay in the house, and you've got to put this sign out as a as a symbol of our relationship and our covenant with you. In the same way that the Israelites were required to do with putting the blood of the sacrifice on the lentil and the doorposts of their homes, in order for for God's avenging angel to pass over those homes in the death of the firstborn in the final plague in Egypt. And so they, she extracts the promise from them that this will be. They say, yep, these are the conditions for that. We're, we're glad to do it because uh, you have done so much for us. And so we, we get that. We've seen all of that. So then what happens is is that, that a couple of chapters later, we were in Joshua 2 is where we meet her uh, and where we see the, the, the 
um, the help that she gives to the uh, Israelite spies. And, and now, after that, comes things like, well, they cross over the Jordan, they erect a monument with 12 stones, which represent the 12 tribes. And then as they come across, Joshua has them all circumcised, and then he meets the commander of the Lord's army, who just appears to him. And he says, are you on our side or their side? And the, and the commander says, no, I'm on the Lord's side. So he's got to make a choice and say, yep, I'm with you. And he falls down in worship, and, and then the angel of the Lord then says, let's go. So then we come to chapter 6, which is the fall of Jericho. So uh, we, we know they march around seven days, and finally the, they rose early in the morning. The priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on and blew the trumpets continually. The armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. You're talking about an enormous crowd of people continually marching around this city for seven consecutive days. And on that seventh day, they shout. They're, they're instructed by Joshua to shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city that is, with, that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. And then he tells everybody else, you stay away from the things that are devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it, which is similar to the curse that Laban put on um, Jacob and his wives when in, in the matter of Rachel stealing her father's household idols and then hiding them, and then the, he puts a curse on them for these things were stolen. So he goes on, and, and everything happens. The wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and captured the city. They devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So those are the productive things that they, they, all, they were all destroyed. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and the iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So she, had, she kept her end of the bargain by not telling the king of Jericho where they were, and, and she sent them in the opposite direction from the way in which the pursuers were sent. And so now the, the time has come for her to be saved. And so she's first put outside the camp of the Israelites. That's the initial place where we see her. And it's exactly what it says is that she is on the outside the camp of Israel. And then so when they first come out, they, they set them aside and set them apart in the same way the Jews had been set apart in Egypt. Because remember, they were, they were considered to be those who were... Um, they, they had a detestable occupation because they were shepherds, and so they were set outside in, an, in a separate place outside Egypt. And then they were, they, they, so they're, they're separated in that way. This family is separated in that way. But then 
what we get right at the end of that passage in verse 25 is, is that she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Jacob or Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And remember yesterday what I told you was one of the things that they note when they talk about Rahab is, is that this was a woman who who saw the fullness, the greatness of the Lord. She didn't just ascribe to him the power on earth, but also in the heavens. And in doing so, that she's saying and making confession that he is king above all kings and lord above all lords. So she has seen the truth of who Yahweh is. She recognized him to be the God of gods and, and without compare. And so it's important that she makes that particular uh, statement because that makes her, essentially, she is confessing the God um, of the Jews, and she's confessing it in, a, in such a way that she recognizes no other gods compare with him, no other gods rightly can even be called gods when they're compared to him. So that they say that she has made the greatest um, sort of uh, confession of God, certainly by, by a Gentile, by a non-Jew, that you'll see anywhere in the Bible. And they, they compare her with others. They compare her with somebody like Naaman, who comes in, um, he's, a, he's a, a man with leprosy in Syria, who is a commander of the, the Syrian army, and, and a Jewish slave girl in his, in his household tells him, you should go and see the man of God in Israel, and that would be Elisha, and, and he will heal you. And so he goes, and what happens, right? He comes, goes, and Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. He sends a servant out and says, hey, go down to the Jordan River and wash yourself seven times. And Naaman is offended by that because he expects some sort of magic to happen. He expects Elisha to come out and, and recognize and respect him as a great personage in, in his role as commander of the army of Syria and wave his hand about and say a few things, and, and then he'd be healed. And and his servants, again, so, he, so a servant girl told him the first thing, time to go there. And now his servants say, hey, if he gave you something really hard to do, wouldn't you do it? Yeah, well, he gave you something pretty easy to do. Why don't you go do that? And so he does. He agrees to do it. And then what happens? He comes back and he recognizes God. He recognizes Yahweh as sovereign. And he asks for dirt from the land of Israel to take back to Syria because he, he is ascribing him power on earth, but he, but he wants to take some of Israel with him. And so that when he makes prayer and supplication, he's kneeling on the dirt of Israel, and therefore he's worshiping that God, the God of Israel. He's not recognizing that God's God wherever you go. He doesn't need the dirt to go there. So, it, it, But it goes along with the idea of shaking the dust off your feet. And so here with, with Rahab, we get a, a, a more complete sort of confession of one who obviously is converting to Judaism. And as I said, Jewish lore says that she's actually married to Joshua. Now, that is not what Matthew tells us in his genealogy. He tells us that she's married to, he's married, she's married to Salomon, and she would be the grandmother of Boaz, who, who is going to marry the next person that we're going to talk about, who is Ruth. And so it seems out of time, and it seems out of order to us, but, but I promise— that Matthew didn't make a mistake. There's something that Matthew knows that we don't know. Matthew's not making it up as he goes along. He can't afford to do that because it'll be discredited if he does. And so what we have to assume is there's something in Jewish tradition that was current at that time that places Rahab in the position Matthew puts her in the genealogy. 
And so that we can we can absolutely assume that Matthew had access to some piece of information that we no longer have access to, because what we can't say is that Matthew's wrong, because that's not the way that this gospel was handled at the time that it came out. You know, he was speaking to a largely Jewish audience in Antioch, which is the place they were first called Christians, and it's the place Paul first goes. And so you can assume at that point that most of these converts are, are Jewish converts to Christianity. And so if Matthew gets the genealogy wrong, then they're going to immediately know that, and they're immediately going to reject him. They're going to reject his scholarship. So, so he must be, quote, right in a way that's not at all obvious to us. You can quibble with the way that I, that I said that, uh, and there are scholars who, who will say that well, Matthew can be discredited because his genealogies are all are wrong on two or three different counts, but the reality is that, that Matthew's genealogy has been accepted down for the last 2,000 years until current biblical scholarship, and, and one of those scholars um, bases, it, bases his rejection of Matthew's genealogy on the fact that Matthew says there are three sets of 13s, 14, sorry, in, in the genealogy, and the last one only has 13. Well, I'm pretty sure that people in those days could count. They, they, they could count just as well as Bart Ehrman can. And so there, there must be something that Bart Ehrman's missing, but, but his belief in his own scholarship won't allow him the humility of saying, there must be something here I don't see and don't fully understand. Because at the time, Matthew's gospel wasn't rejected. If it had been a spurious gospel, and if it had been something that was, that was discredited, there's no way the early church would have brought that into the canon of Scripture. So we can get over the idea of, of scholarship showing us that this, this isn't uh, uh, a credible um, genealogy by simply saying that the early church accepted it uncritically. And what I mean by that is, is that, that they, they didn't say, well, we're going to have to rewrite the genealogy to, to be right. No, they accepted it as it was, and they had reasons for doing so. So they weren't troubled about it. And, and so I think for me, that gives me confidence that, that I can accept it on whatever terms it's presented to me, because otherwise it wouldn't have, have ultimately been accepted by the church because of the way that the canon of Scripture was put together. was It, it took mostly those things that were ascribed to be uh, to uh, an apostle and those things which were used by the church at large in, in all the places where the church was. So it, it received those things into the canon, and, and it, the canon was, was really put together with almost no dispute. There was, there was a little bit—I mean, things like the Gospel of Thomas never were even considered to be part of the canon. Nobody believed those to have been written by Thomas— there were multiple other books that, that could have gone in. One of those was called The Shepherd of Hermas, but nobody, with the exception of a few people, believed that should be in the canon. And the people that did were the community around the author of The Shepherd of Hermas. And so th- those people loved the person who wrote it and loved the book. It meant a lot to them because of its authorship, and so they included it in their canon. But once the canon had been established by the church, then then it fell out, and it wasn't used beyond that. It's not that it's a bad thing or a wrong thing. It just wasn't used. But but a lot of the, quote, apocryphal gospels that you hear about, nobody took those seriously. And it's what's odd is the people who take those seriously today are the very people who want to say things like, well, Matthew's genealogies are wrong. Well, 
I don't, I don't, in my mind, you can't have it both ways. You have to take the authority of the early church. I don't have to take the authority of somebody 2,000 years away from that. I want to, I want to receive the authority of the early church that, that God superintended the canon of Scripture and, and the books that are in there are the ones that he wants in there. doesn't mean we, can, we can't find fruitful study in other places, but to the extent that anything um, it tells a different story about Jesus and who he is, then, then that has to be rejected. And the witness of the church down the last 2,000 years, based in that canon of Scripture, is, is in my mind, plenty enough evidence to say these are the books God wanted in there. So I, I, I'm not defending the genealogy. I can't defend it, but all I can say is, at the end of the day, I don't understand how it's right, but I believe that it is. For whatever terms he wrote it on and whatever he intended with it, I believe it to be correct. And that's because the early church would have been largely composed of Jewish converts. And had there been a significant problem with these genealogies, they would have rejected this gospel completely. And, and Matthew puts it right at the forefront of the gospel. I mean, you, you've got to evaluate the rest of the gospel based on the truthfulness of the first part, don't you? So that, that's sort of the way that I look at it and the way that I look at scriptural, quote, controversies. And there's not many scriptural controversies, to be perfectly honest with you. There's, there are deviations in texts from one place to the next, but not a single one of those deviations would change anything about the doctrine of the church. Wouldn't even come close to changing it. So when people talk about the errors in the Bible, they're talking about like scribal errors or translation errors as the Bible passed from place to place. But the reality is, is that, that it's a remarkably well-attested text, far more so than any other ancient text. I mean, like it's, it's a joke to compare the number of manuscripts that we have of the Bible to the manuscript of anything, like, the, like Homer's Iliad. And, and so it's, we have like thousands of times, literally thousands of times, more copies of manuscripts of, of the Bible than, than exists for any other ancient document. And the, the deviations from one to another are so slight that, it, that it's a joke. And, and not only that, what we have is not only do we have like, you know, thousands of times more manuscripts, we also have those closer in time to the actual events that are being described. The, the history of the world, the Julius Caesar history, you don't have any of those manuscripts for several hundred years after the time in which it would have to have been written. Same with the Iliad and the Odyssey. The, those manuscripts are, are far later in time. There's far greater attestation to the manuscripts, and, and they're closer in time to the events they describe than any other ancient manuscript by, by, by almost light years and that's because the Christian community considered this such an important book, or a collection of books, maybe is the way you want to say it, but but it was considered so important, and, and it was considered sacred. And that's the reason Jewish scribal errors are, are just almost nil in the Old Testament. In, in the New Testament, you, you've got multiple congregations all over the place without any central authority over those things, and so there there can be deviations in text. But as I said, those deviations are not anything to do with, with any doctrine that's established. With, with, I will say this with one exception, and that is the end of the Gospel of Mark, where it talks about handling snakes and drinking poison. That's, that, that passage is nowhere found in the earliest manuscripts, neither is the story of, of uh, the woman caught in adultery. 
Those two, those two episodes are not found in the earliest manuscripts, and so there's, there is certainly a sect of Christianity that takes that, that stuff at the end of the Gospel of Mark about handling snakes and drinking poison and, and makes it a doctrine in their churches, but, but those are tiny little churches that the rest of the, the Christian world are absolutely certain got it wrong. <laughs> and so it's it so it's not established as doctrine in the church at large only in those little churches that primarily are here are here in in the region that I live in in Appalachia uh, they don't exist much outside this region I'm not sure I'd, I'd, I'd never been interested enough to read the history of the development of those churches but I will recommend a book to you it's called Salvation on Sand Mountain by a guy named Dennis Covington and it was written probably 30 years ago now and it, it's an excellent book he there was a trial that happened down in northern Alabama, and he covered it for the Birmingham newspaper. I think it was the Birmingham newspaper he was working for at the time. And, and he get, became infatuated with this group and trying to figure out who they were and why they, were the, why they did the things they did. And so he began to follow them around and, and ended up writing a book about them. And it's a fascinating book. He got to know them really well, um, participated actually in handling snakes on at least one occasion. It's been a while since I've read it, but but I would I would recommend the book. Like I said, it's called Salvation on Sand Mountain and it's by Dennis Covington. Um, so anyway, that I didn't I don't know that I intended to get into all this stuff about the canon to do with Rahab, but it's an important thing to know. And, and if you want recommendations on books or whatever to read on the formation of the canon of Scripture, then then you can just message me, and, and I'll make some recommendations to you. If you message me at um, facebook.com slash faithandunderstanding, you can, you can catch it there. Otherwise, you can email me um, at mspgteach.com. 2002, so 2002, at gmail.com, and I will send you recommendations uh, for books to read about how the canon of Scripture was, was put together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.